Hi and welcome to this latest podcast from 1914 to 1918war.com. In this episode we'll be continuing our reading of Bruce Benfather's book Bullets and Billets. Uh, we'll be on chapter three this time. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss any future episodes. Now let's get on with chapter three. Chapter 3. Those Plug Street Trenches, Mud and Rain, Flooded Out, A Hopeless Dawn. An extraordinary sensation, the first time of going into trenches. The first idea that struck me about them was their haphazard design. There was no doubt some very excellent reason for someone or other making the trenches as they were, but they really did strike me as curious when I first saw them. A trench will perhaps run diagonally across a field, or then go along a hedge at right angles, suddenly give it up and then start again, 50 yards to the left, in such a position that's bound to cross the kitchen garden of a shattered chateau, go through the greenhouse and out into the road. On getting there, it henceforth rivals the ditch at the side. In the amount of water, it can run off into a row of dugouts in the next field. There's apparently no necessity for a trench to be in any way parallel to the line of your enemy. As long as he can't shoot you from immediately behind, that's all you ask. It was a long and weary night, that first one of mine in the trenches. Everything was strange and wet and horrid. First of all, I had to go up and fix my machine guns at various points and find places for the gunners to sleep in. This was no easy matter, as many of the dugouts had fallen in and floated off downstream. In this and subsequent descriptions of the trenches, I may lay myself open to the charge of exaggeration, but it must be remembered that I'm describing trench life in the early days of 1914, and I feel sure that those who had the experience of them will acquit me of any such charge. To give a recipe for getting a rough idea, in case you want to, I recommend the following procedure. Select a flat 10-acre ploughed field so sited that all the surface water of the surrounding country drains into it. Now cut a zigzag, about four feet deep and three feet wide, diagonally across. Dam off as much water as you can so as to leave about a hundred yards of squelchy mud. Delve out a hole at one side of the slot, then endeavour to live there for a month on bully beef and damp biscuits, whilst a friend has instructions to fire at you with his Winchester every time you put your head above the surface. Well, here I was anyway, and the next thing was to make the best of it. As I have before said, these were the days in the earliest trenches in this war, days when we had none of those desirable props such as corrugated iron floorboards and sandbags ad lib. When you made a dugout in those days, you made it out of anything you could find and generally had to make it yourself. That first night I was in, I discovered, after a humid hour or two, that our battalion wouldn't fit into the spaces left by the last one. And as regards dugouts, the truth of that mathematical axiom, twos into one won't go, suddenly dawned on me with painful clearness. I was faced with making a dugout and it was raining, of course. Note. Whenever I don't state the climatic conditions, read raining. 
After sloshing about in several primitive trenches in the vicinity of the spot where we had fixed our best machine gun position, my sergeant and I discovered a sort of covered passage in a ditch in front of a communication trench. It was a sort of emergency exit back from a row of ramshackle waterlogged hovels in the ditch to the communication trench. We decided to make use of this passage and arrange things in such a way that by scooping out the clay walls we made two caves, one behind the other. The front one was about five yards from the machine cave and you reached the back cave by going through the outer one. It now being about 11pm and having been for the last five hours perpetually on the scramble through trenches of all sorts, I drew myself into the inner cave to go to sleep. This little place was about four feet long, three feet high and three feet wide. I got out my knife, took a scoop out of the clay wall and fishing out a candle end from my pocket, dug it into the niche, lit it and a cigarette. I now lay down and tried to size up the situation and life in general. Here I was in this horrible clay cavity somewhere in Belgium, miles and miles from home, cold, wet through and covered with mud. This was the first day, and so far as I could see, the future contained nothing more but repetitions of the same thing or worse. Nothing was to be heard except the occasional crack of the sniper's shot, the dripping of the rain and the low murmur of voices from the outer cave. In the narrow space beside me lay my equipment, revolver and a sodden packet of cigarettes, everything damp, cold and dark, candle-end guttering. I think suddenly of something like the Empire or the Alhambra or anything else that's reminiscent of brightness and life and then swish bang back to the reality that the damp clay wall is only 18 inches in front of me and that here I am, that the Bosch is just on the other side of the field and there doesn't seem to be the slightest chance of leaving except in an ambulance. My machine gun section for the gun nearby lay in front of the cave a couple of feet from me their spasmodic talking gradually died away as one by one they dropped off to sleep. One more indignant, hopeless stare at the flickering candle end, then I pinched the wick, curled up and went to sleep. A sudden, cold sort of peppermint sensation assailed me. I awoke and sat up. My head cannoned off the clay ceiling, so I partially had to lie down again. I attempted to strike a match, but found that the whole box was damp and sodden. I heard a muttering of voices and a curse or two in the outer cavern, and presently the sergeant entered my sanctum on all fours. We've been flooded out, sir. There's water a foot deep in this place of ours. Ah, that explains it. I feel all around the back of my greatcoat and find I've been sleeping in a pool of water. I crawled out of my inner chamber, and the whole lot of us dived through the rapidly rising water into the ditch outside. I scrambled up to the top of the bank and tried to focus the situation. From inquiries and personal observation, I found that the cause of the tide rising was the fact that the engineers had been draining the trench, in the course of which process they had apparently struck a spring of water. We accepted the cause of this disaster philosophically and immediately discussed what was the best thing to be done. Action of some sort was urgently necessary, as at present we were all sitting on the top of a mud bank of the ditch in the silent steady rain, the whole party being occasionally illuminated by a German star shell. More like a family sitting for a flashlight photograph than anything else. We decided to make a dam. Having found an empty ration box and half a bag of coke, we started on the job of trying to fence off the water from our cave. After about an hour's struggle with the elements, we at last succeeded, with the aid of the ration box, the sack of coke, 
and a few tins of bully in reducing the water level inside to six inches. Here we were, now wetter than ever, cold as polar bears, sitting in this hygroscopic catacomb at about 2am. We longed for a fire. A fire was decided on. We had a fire bucket. It had started life as a biscuit tin. A few bits of damp wood, but no coke. We had some coke, I'm sure. Why, of course, we built it into the dam. Down came the dam, out came the coke, and in came the water. However, we preferred the water to the cold, so finally, after many exasperating efforts, we got a fire going in the bucket. Five minutes bliss, followed by disaster. The fire bucket proceeded to emit such dense volumes of sulphurous smoke that in a few moments we couldn't see a lighted match. We stuck it a short time longer, then one by one dived into the water and out into the air, shooting out of our mud hovel to the surface like snakes when you pour water down their holes. Time now 3am, no sleep. Rain, water, plus smoke. A board meeting held immediately decides to give up sleep and dugouts for that night. A motion to try and construct a chimney with an entrenching tool is defeated by five votes to one. Dawn is breaking. My first night in the trenches comes to an end. That was chapter three of Bruce Benn's father's book, Bullets and Billets, written in 1916. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Be sure to give us a nice review and uh, subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening.